Romans chapter 13 today. If you take your Bible and join us there, Romans chapter number 13. Okay, while you're turning, I'm going to ask some questions and I want you to come up with an honest answer. And it's not an answer that I'm asking you to respond to audibly, but I'm asking you to respond to it mentally. So provide for yourself an answer. I don't think they're complicated and quite honestly, I'm not trying to to trick you with a question. So just answer in your mind the question that is being asked. Should a father say to the police officer, after his son is pulled over, his son's driving, the dad's sitting in the passenger seat, should the father say to the police officer, it's okay, I told my son he could drive 65 in a 45. Is it okay? Secondly, should a church member say to the IRS, my pastor told me I don't need to pay my taxes? I have a quick answer for that, but you answer the question in your own mind. Should a pastor say to a father, your child is not allowed to spend the night at that friend's house? Should a pastor say to a father, Your child is not allowed to spend the night at that friend's house. Should a church member say to a pastor, I can wear whatever I want when I sing in the choir? There's a group behind us we could ask that question to. Of course, I I don't know if you answered the questions easily or if you said, well, there are some nuanced answers that need to go along with it. I'm really not looking for the nuance, just for the straightforward answer. And if we're answering them in a straightforward fashion, I think the obvious answer to each of those questions is no. No, a dad can't say to a police officer, it's okay, I told my son that he could drive 65 and a 45. The church member can't say to the IRS, my pastor told me it was okay that I not pay my taxes. A pastor should never say to a father, "Uh, uh, uh, your child can't spend the night at so-and-so's house. And a church member shouldn't say to the pastor or to the church authorities, I can wear whatever I want to sing in the choir. All of these questions demonstrate some lack of understanding toward legitimate, God-ordained authority. The title of our message today is The Powers Ordained by God. We're going to begin by looking at three different types of God-ordained authority as it pertains to the family, to the government, and to church. Now, before we jump into this passage of Scripture... Let me also mention something that's rather obvious right now. It sounds a little stormy outside, okay? So, um, unless there's someone particularly hungry in here, but I think it's outside. Okay, so with that said, we have had a lot of storms here lately, which we're all aware of. The other thing that I'm aware of is in this room, there are a lot of people that are, they have their phone, their digital device connected to where they work at Pensacola Christian College. Certainly that's not true for everybody, but for several. And you also receive alerts on your phone, some from weather services, some from your employer, some from your mother-in-law. I don't know who all you get them from, but, but they may come, you know, if we get some kind of an alert, a weather alert, you may hear those all at the same time. 
And uh, let me just reassure you, you are in one of the safest places if you are, if we are in a storm, um, even a violent storm, we're in a really safe place. So if those take place during the service, we'll ask that um, at that point we just silence our phones and then we'll continue on with the service. So again, today we're going to cover what we're addressing regarding these three areas, the family, the government, and the church. Now remember, all three of these are areas of authority that are ordained by God. If we wanted to picture it in our minds, we might picture a circle, and that's the circle, the sphere of authority that pertains to the family. And then we draw another circle, and that's the circle that pertains to the government. And then we might even draw underneath those to a third circle, and that would be the, the authority that God has granted to, ordained as a part of the local church. All of these are individual spheres, circles of authority, and they have their own. And yet, at times, those circles might even just briefly or slightly overlap while still retaining their individual authority. The Bible in Romans chapter 13 is going to address one of those specific areas of authority. We're going to look at the first two areas briefly. We'll look at the family, we'll look at the church, and then we'll spend the majority of our time as we look at the authority of the government. Your Bibles are open right now to Romans 13. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Romans 13, 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Our Father, we ask that as we look at this passage of Scripture and into these challenging commandments, directives, may we do so with humility, with the fear of the Lord, and may we do so with an honest desire to practice what you have instructed. This we pray because of Christ. Amen. Well, today, let's begin by looking at those different spheres of authority. And the first area we're going to look at is what we'll call the confusion of the family. The confusion of the family. Now, along with this, let's at least give us a basic working definition of what is this. Because if we don't know what are we talking about, how can we understand what's the confusion? So family defined. A family is the product of a marriage commitment which includes a physical union that normally produces children. 
Marriage is a commitment between a man and a woman and is designed by God for their happiness, the welfare of their children, and the support and stability of society. Now again, that's not a complete definition of the family, but it does give us something to work with. We understand that a family exists of a dad and of a mom. Their union, their physical union, normally produces children, and that marriage now, that family exists for the good of all of those involved, the stability of the same, and for the stability and ongoing stability of the culture, the societies. The, the, the place upon which this family now exists. You say, well, where do we even get the basis for that biblically? We do so from the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse number 27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, this couple, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. Now this is the blessing, the physical blessing of their union and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now let me at least acknowledge, we do understand that there are certainly families without a father or a mother. And God recognizes and provides for this, but he has never provided for a family to not begin with or not have as its basis a father, that being a man, and a mother, that being a woman. There are some today, and, and again, we're covering this sphere of authority briefly, but there are some today that promote the idea that children must discover their own way. And at times, they even speak of something like a family vote. Okay, I don't know about you and your family, but in my family, when I was a kid growing up, we really didn't have what some might call this family democracy. That was not how it worked in my family. If it did work that way, we all as kids got one vote and dad got like 22, okay? And so it wasn't a family democracy. We, we might say that it was more like a benevolent dictatorship, okay? And so dad was the guy and mom, by the way, was his co-regent. So they together ruled over the family. And again, this is something that we understand as the responsibility, not just the privilege of a dad and a mom, but the responsibility and the authority granted to the same. This is not the church's job to raise the children of a family. This is not certainly the government's job to raise the children of a family. This belongs to, first and foremost, the father, and then his co-regent, the mother. You say, well, where do you even get that? Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse number 6, the Bible says, In these words which I command thee. N notice how personal this passage is. He keeps bringing it back to the individual. I'm commanding you. And this command which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and upon thy gates. 
Do you know what the scriptural instruction is? It's continually, you are supposed to do this. You are supposed to train your children. That's the responsibility because there's God-given authority to accomplish the same. Now, again, this doesn't mean that the church or the government have no responsibility as it pertains to children. Certainly, there would be some overlap, but the primary responsibility remains with the family. Well, that's, that's the, the confusion at times today of the family, who's supposed to do that? But if we go a little bit further, we consider the confusion of the church, the confusion of the church. I think there has been, since the church was, was birthed by Jesus, since, since he gave it its power, its authority, and its commission, there have been those who have found confusing what is the primary responsibility, the job of the local church. So again, again, this is not intended to be a full definition of the church, but let's give ourselves a brief working definition. Church defined. A church is a local, independent body of born-again, baptized believers joined together in Christ for worship and ministry in their community and around the world. It is tasked with making disciples. I know, again, there's many things that we could say regarding the primary responsibility or definitions of a church, but that gives us some working understanding of what is the definition or what makes up a church. Today, we often equate, and here's where our confusion may come in even for us today. We often equate a strong America to a strong church. We believe that if the country were on the right track, then the church would be as well. The problem with this thinking is that the church throughout all of history has been able to exist and thrive in all types of political environments. To provide clarity to the confusion of the church, we have to recognize at least two things today. And again, this is a brief look at this realm of authority. First of all, the health of the government has nothing to do with the health of the church. Can I say that again? The health of the government has nothing to do with the health of the church. In his perfect wisdom, God planted the church in Rome during a time when the government reflected a culture which was absolutely morally corrupt. And yet this is the place where God plants a church and a letter is given to this church with the doctrine and the foundations for Christian living, which we still hold to and have spent many months now walking through this book given to the church at Rome. The Roman leader during the time of the writing of Romans 13 was none other than Nero. Many would believe that he was insane certainly that his cognitive abilities were severely distorted. You would think that this would greatly impair the advancement of the church, but nothing could be further from the truth. The first thing that we have to understand without elaborating today due to time, the health of the government has nothing to do with the health of the church. Secondly, the mission of the church is not to make the state better, but to make sinners believers. The primary mission now of the church is not to say, well, we have to make the state better. That's the job of the church. It actually is not the job of the church. The job of the church, again, is not to say, we're going to have to make the state better. No, our job is to make sinners believers. 
The primary mission of the church is the commission left for us by Christ. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, and he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, that sums it up quite directly, doesn't it? What's the church to be doing? Advancing the work of the gospel. So the primary mission of the church is not to make the state better, but sinners believers, not to end social injustice, but to bring people to justification in Jesus Christ. Not to simply hand out bread to the hungry, but to give the bread of life that truly satisfies man's deepest hunger. And some may say immediately, well, Jesus fed the hungry. That is true, but always with a more important view for a grander purpose. The focus of the church should not simply be to impact the culture through social adaptation. Rather, it should be to impact the soul through spiritual transformation. Our often cultural change has followed spiritual transformation, but seldom, if ever, has it preceded it. So what are we supposed to be about? Well, we're supposed to be about going out and living the gospel and bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Temporal issues should never become the primary focus of the church. They may be important issues for the church. I'm not saying that we neglect them, that we don't address them, that we don't do anything about them, but they are not our primary focus. They, again, may be important, but they not, must not replace our primary focus. Our primary mission is not to reform society, but to redeem sinners. Again, societal change may result, but it is the byproduct, not our primary goal. Okay, remember, in Babylon was Daniel's primary job going there to reform Babylon. No, his his primary job was, God, I'm going to honor and worship and serve you. Paul was not called upon to save Rome. Spurgeon was not called upon to save England. And you and I are not called upon God to save America. But we have been called upon God to save the people of America. So go save Americans. And in the process, you may see America saved. Yes, we should seek the peace of the place where we now live. I believe Christians should seek positions of influence wherever they may be, get involved in politics and serve. We should, like Christ, go about and be known as people that wherever they go, they go about doing good. Christians go about and they set up hospitals. They set up orphanages. They help the downtrodden. This is something that Christians have always done. But in the midst of us going about and doing good, may all of it be connected with our primary responsibility of obeying the Great Commission. Okay, so there's confusion oftentimes in the family. I know there is confusion in the church, and, and not that we've brought great clarity to both of those realms of authority this morning, but at least the thinking of what are their primary responsibilities. Now, let's address the matter of the confusion of the government. The confusion of the government. Again, just for a working definition, let's look at government defined. The governing authority, this is what government is. The governing authority established by God to promote and protect the common good and to execute judgment on those who interfere with the tranquility and dignity 
of its citizens. So let's, let's start walking through this a little bit more carefully. Let's consider both the origin and the obligations of human government. First of all, the origin of government. That really begins, we get our, our understanding like, oh, we see that God has vested government, human overseers with real authority. And like, whoa, that's serious authority. It's not just like, okay, well, establish roads and systems and an army. He gave human government serious authority. And he does so in Genesis chapter 9, verse number 6. Genesis 9, 6 helps us understand Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? He even gives us the answer. Why should you do this? Now, now we see, for in the image of God made he man. We'll address this again briefly, and, and we'll do it in just a moment. But hold on to the thought about the why and the importance of it. At times, we're talking, we're talking specifically here about capital punishment. And at times, people say, well, you know, one of the primary reasons for capital punishment is the fact that it's a deterrent to others. And we're going to see that in Romans chapter 13. It is a deterrent. But it's not the primary reason why man's blood should be shed when he goes out and murders another man. The primary reason is actually the dignity of mankind. Because you and I are made in the image of Almighty God. And that's the basis on which God says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall blood be shed. Today, there are, are, there's a raging debate regarding capital punishment. And there are those who say, well, it doesn't work as a deterrent, so stop doing it. That's really not the primary reason God gave it to us. The primary reason God gave us capital punishment was because mankind was made in the image of God. And when you treat that lightly, you have overstepped. And God said, okay, because you shed man's blood, by man shall your blood be shed. Well, the origin, the, the origin it came from Genesis chapter 9, verse number 6. This authority came from God. Jesus himself acknowledges it. That this authority comes from God. And it's a thunderous authority, okay? <laughs> so the authority comes from God. Do you remember when Pilate was questioning Jesus? So Jesus is standing in front of him, the creator, in front of the created. And Pilate asks him a question and Jesus doesn't answer. And Pilate snaps at Jesus and he says, don't you know, I have the authority to take your life or to set you free. And notice how Jesus responds. Jesus said, thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. John 19, 11. Where does Jesus himself acknowledges, acknowledges that Pilate's power come from, came from? Jesus said, Pilate, your power, your authority. And Jesus is saying, I acknowledge you have it. I know you do. And I also know from whence it came, your power came from God. Now, Pilate is going to answer for his use of that authority, but we do acknowledge the place from which it came. This is the origin of government. God is the one who grants it its power. Look at the obligation of government, and basically it's twofold. The obligation of government. Well, first of all, protection. The Bible says again in our text, if your Bibles are open or you can look at it here, Romans 13, 3, for rulers are not a, notice this word, terror 
to good works, but to the evil, wilt thou not then be afraid of the powers? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Do you know the word terror that's used there? It's the, it's the Greek word from which we get our word phobia. Like, whoa, whoa, I have a, a, a phobic response. But I, I, there's some phobia that I have about this thing. Do you know what he says? He says rulers are a terror to those who are doing wrong. He says, listen, if you're doing right, don't be afraid of them. It's okay. Should there be a deterrent? Yes. Should there be something like if we practice consistently what God told mankind to practice? I know this is controversial and, and it's not my intention to be, but it's certainly found in the pages of Scripture. If we practice consistently and in a timely fashion what the Bible tells man to do, and that is, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. If we practice consistently in a timely fashion, capital punishment, it would also provide an additional deterrent of fear. There's a pho phobia, like, wow, listen, if you're doing wrong, there should be a terror attached to your wrongdoing because the government does not bear the sword. There are some that believe that the word sword here is specifically attached to, not just some figurative sense of power, but specifically the use of that power as it pertains to capital punishment. This is one of the reasons why God gave government the use of power, specifically capital punishment, as a terror to evil workers. It is part of the protective work of the government to also be a preventative work preventative, like protection, like, oh, I'm afraid if I get caught, what's going to happen to me? It seems today there is little fear of what will be the consequences of my wrongdoing. Well, protection is one, and then if we just take that to its natural conclusion, government is also tasked with the responsibility of punishment. Protection, okay, I'm supposed to protect my citizenry, and I'm supposed to punish those who interfere with that. The Bible says again in verse number four, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Punishment. Okay, how many of you, um, how many of you do check your speedometer when you see a police car drive by? How many of you do that? Raise your, lots of people do, okay? And I learned something from uh, one of our church members preached in this pulpit recently, and that was um, Pastor Ed Thompson. He pastored for a lot of years, teaches one of our adult Bible study groups, and he, pa and, he, and he preached in my absence recently. And one of the things he says is, listen, if you break the speed limit, you're going to get a ticket unless you are a pastor. It quite honestly has made me question my call, Okay. So recently, Julie and I were on vacation. I'm driving. I think this is what happened. At least I'm, this is my story, and I'm sticking to it. We're in Can't Nowhere. We just crossed into Colorado. We're on a two-lane road. We're out in the middle of nowhere, and I passed a semi-truck. I had honestly, this is the truth, I've been really careful about my speed the whole trip, and it's a 22-hour drive. Been really careful. We're in Colorado about to get to where my parents live, and out in, this, out in the middle of nowhere, and I'm going too fast. And, and a car drove past me, no lights or anything, but he did a U-turn right away, and my wife noticed it. Oh, did you notice that, that, that truck back there just did a U-turn? No, I, I didn't, but as soon as I noticed that, I looked down at my speedometer. 
And then that truck worked his way and got right behind me. And then there was this fantastic light show in my rearview mirror. And uh, lo and behold, I got a traffic ticket. And uh, I was quite polite, and I mean this in no jesting or joking manner. And I acknowledged my wrongdoing, that I was going beyond what the speed limit allowed. They went back to their vehicle. They, they sat in their vehicle. They didn't, by the way, they didn't ask me my occupation. And I didn't offer it, okay? They simply offered me something else. And they came back to the window and they said, I'm going to give you a ticket. And they handed it to me and I politely thanked them for the same. What, what does um, government and their representatives do? Well, they, they punish wrongdoing. Do they have the authority to do so? Absolutely. Based on the authority granted them by God. What's the obligation of government? It is protection and it is punishment when we go beyond or fall short of. Wow, this has never happened before. Okay, so let's, let's continue on. Use the uh, scriptures that are posted on the screen since you'll have a hard time. Let there be light. Since you may have a hard time seeing it in your Bible. Let's notice what the government is not for. They are for protection. They are for punishment. Here's what they're not for. They're not for, and please don't miss this. This is where much of the confusion of government lies today. They are for protection. They are for punishment, but they are not intended by God to be there for provision. Not for provision. Much of the confusion comes today in not recognizing these two primary obligations. Today, many have added a third obligation to protection and punishment, that being provision. However, this was never God's intent for the establishment of government. Currently, currently, as of yesterday, our national debt here in the United States of America is $32 trillion. $32 trillion. And when added together, the provisional aspects of our nation's budget they account for the largest share of our national budget, provisional aspects. Far more, by the way, if you just add together those aspects of our nation's budget, all of those provisional aspects, they total far more than what our nation spends for our national defense. You say, well, what what does this bring about? It brings about a confusion of the purpose for government The purpose is protection and punishment, not provision. So let's do this as we wrap these thoughts up. Let's consider the clarification for believers. The clarification for believers. You and I are followers of Jesus Christ. We live in light of these realms of authority. What does this mean for us specifically as it pertains to the government? Number one, it means that you and I as Christians are to first and foremost submit Let me say that again, and please don't miss this, and don't already be searching for your loophole. Let's start where Scripture does, okay? Let's begin with the implications of this passage. The passage says, let every soul, that includes you, and that includes me. Let every soul, every soul, you are not the exemption from every soul. Let every soul be what? Subject 
unto the higher powers. For there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And while Paul is beseeching us to something in Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, he's pleading with us. Here he says straight up, let every soul be. This is what you have to do. He's writing this to the church at Rome where a large majority of the believers there, we understand, are Jewish. Jews living underneath Roman authority. And the Apostle Paul says to the church specifically in his letter to the Romans, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. And when you think about what is it that's about to happen through a crazed Caesar, Nero, it's, it's actually mind-boggling that these are the truths being written to the church during this day. He's beseeching us in one place, but directing and commanding us. He even goes so far as to say that because God has ordained these authorities, if you resist the power, you are resisting God. Who is it that sets up leaders? In Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, he, that is God, he removeth kings and setteth up kings. In Daniel chapter 27, verse 37 and 38, thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand and made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Daniel clearly understood that to obey the king was to obey the one that had made him king, the one who had given the king his authority, and that is God. This was the conclusion of the psalmist, Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. So before we move on, it is important to note that the only exception allowed to this submission to government is when the governmental authority contradicts God's authority or exceeds the authority that God has granted. The midwives of Moses' day disobeyed Pharaoh because he exceeded his authority, commanding them to take the lives of the infants. Then we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego obey God rather than King Nebuchadnezzar, refusing to bow down to the king's image and were ready to suffer the consequences of their disobedience to the king because of their obedience to God. We see Daniel obey God rather than King Darius and continue to pray quite publicly and again prepared to suffer the consequences of his obedience to God. Peter and John are wonderful examples for us when commanded to cease from speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. Do you know there are pastors in certain states during certain times of our recent past here in the United States of America that were instructed to turn in and submit their sermons for approval to the state. That's a time when a pastor, by God's grace, has to disobey. He doesn't seek the approval of man to be able to preach what the Bible commands for him to say. What did they do? And they called them and commanded them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. He says, you be the judge of that. 
for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So why submit to the powers that be? Well, we know we're commanded to. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. It teaches us that we are not all equal as it pertains to our authority. Let me say that again. That goes far beyond just an understanding of the sphere of authority as it pertains to the government. We are not all equal as it pertains to our authority. Yes, you and I have power, but we here see there are degrees of power, levels of authority, and we are not all on an equal plane. This means, for example, in a home, a child's vote is not as weighty as a parent's. If you are an employee and you come to work for a company or a business or a ministry for that matter, you come understanding your authority or desires for things to be done in a certain way, and they do not carry the same weight as does your employer. This is the case with government. The Greek word that's used here to submit, it, it is um, hypotasso, hupotasso. Uh, you say, well, what does that mean? It means to line up under. It's a military term. It says, get in line. This is our command from God as it pertains to our government. We understand that there, are punishment, there is punishment for those who do not do this. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Do you understand who it is, to whom it is that he is asking us to submit? If you study the passage, Romans 13, in, in our passage, multiple times he uses the, the phrase, the description of governmental authorities as they are the ministers of God. Okay, ministers of God. Do you know what Greek word is used for ministers of God? It's the Greek word diakonos. They are, this is God's deacon board. I mean, when you get pulled over, you can say, hello, deacon. You know, I mean, this is, this is who it is that's pulling us over, okay? Do you know what he's instructing us to do? He's saying, these are my servants, and I am the one who has granted them their authority, why do we do this? Well, we're commanded to. What are we do, doing? Well, we're submitting ourselves. What else are we supposed to do? We're supposed to support them. Support them. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Do you know essentially what he's saying here? And again, I know it's controversial for some. Trust, it's not for you. He's saying pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Paul knew this would need to be addressed. These are new believers. And do you know what they understand? They understand I have a new citizenship. I'm a citizen of heaven. And since I'm a citizen of heaven, I don't have to pay taxes to my citizenship here on earth. What Paul is really saying is you have dual citizenship. Justin Martyr lived in the midst of a tremendous time of persecution in the first century. He and his students, some of his students were later martyred. Listen to what he wrote regarding his political leaders. Everywhere we, more readily than all men, endeavor to pay to those appointed by you the taxes both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Jesus Christ. We worship only God, but in other things, we will gladly serve you and not acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men 
and praying that with your kingly power, you will have sound judgment. The last thing that we're to do to them is to honor them. Honor them. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. He is the minister of God to thee for good. He is the minister of God. They are God's ministers. I've heard it said this way, as it pertains to our submission to governmental authorities. A Christian is to be a good Christian until being a good citizen means being a bad Christian. Let me read that again. A Christian is to be a good citizen until being a good citizen means being a bad Christian. How good of a citizen are you? Sometimes that depends on how good of a Christian are you. Do you remember when Jesus was being tempted by his words and they said, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus said, bring me a coin and a coin was brought. And he said, whose image is stamped on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And therefore he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. On a coin, the image of Caesar is stamped. On the life of every believer, the image of Jesus Christ is to be imprinted. And may we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And by our daily example, may we render to God the image stamped upon our lives, those things that are God's.